Would you open your Bibles with me to Deuteronomy chapter 8? Deuteronomy chapter 8, and we will begin in verse 1. Deuteronomy 8.1, be careful to follow every command I am giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land that the Lord promised on oath to your forefathers. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out and your feet did not swell during these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. Today, the main text, as it was read, read it, Deuteronomy 8.2, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. The experience of the people in Israel, of Israel in the desert, was to know what was in their heart. But God knows everything. God knows what's in people's hearts. So the 40 years of Israel in the desert was for the Israelites to know what was in their own heart. The heart in the Bible represents the whole person, the inner person, the mind, the will, all who we really are inside. And if the heart is who we really are, why or how is that we do not know what's in our own heart? Let me tell you a story. About 20 years ago, we were doing evangelism door to door. The person with whom I was told me, let's go visit this couple that I just met. So we went to their house. It was winter. This couple was a couple of newly arrived Cuban doctors. It was winter. But when he came to the door, he was wearing only long johns. He didn't seem to care. He was there with his wife just wearing the long johns. And as we were talking to them. He was looking at himself in a mirror wall, and he was kind of posing. <laughs> the interesting thing for me is that he had a belly, but he didn't seem to see it. He was so proud of himself. So the interaction was relatively short, and we left. I didn't say anything to my friend, but a few years ago, I hear someone saying that when people walk in a department store in front of a mirror, most women tend to hide, but most men like to look at themselves. They may even come back for a second look. And when he said that, I immediately thought about the Cuban doctor. 
But I also realize that I, even though I don't post in department store mirrors, do the same when I look at the mirror. I like to look at what I like to see, and I just ignore what I don't want to see. <laughs> I think that's part of human nature. And we tend to do those things with physical things, but we also do that with our character flaws. We do that uh, with our wrongful attitudes, and sometimes, or many times, with our sins. We are blind to what other people see in us. But also there are times when we don't see because we just don't see, we don't know. When we were kids in Mexico, if another kid came and said, hey, I know what you ate, you knew the answer. The answer is mole. Mole is a red sauce that you eat just like when you eat uh, spare ribs. You just get at it, and you get the marks right here. And you're a kid, and you try to clean yourself, and you think you're clean, but you have the red marks. So everybody knows that you ate mole. And that's exactly what happened to the men in Proverbs, the fool in Proverbs. Everybody sees that he's a fool. His mouth gushes folly, but he so happily is spreading it around, so proud of it, because he just doesn't see it. How can we be blind to our sin? It is really easy, because we have become experts to blind ourselves. Even though it is obvious, instead of accepting it, we accuse others for what we do, deflecting attention from us. We cover up our sin and our guilt being good in other areas. We whitewash and can decode reality. We blame others for our failures. We deny or avoid reality. We make excuses. We blame shift. We rationalize. We compare ourselves to others. We minimize our wrongdoing, anything to avoid seeing, accepting our sin and our guilt. Just like Adam, he believed that when he covered himself with the fig leaves, he did a good job. So we think we have done a good job when we change the subject, or we crack jokes about it, or when we run from the problem. Some people get even defensive and accusatory and taste, uh, testy and bully others to defend themselves. On the other hand, we might overdo penance saying, oh, poor me, I'm so terrible person, but without repenting from our sin. Those are some of the few reasons why we don't see what's in our heart, because we don't like to look into it. Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? That is why the arguments for immorality that says, oh, if they love each other, why is it wrong? Or if that's what makes them happy, it's okay. Those are the worst because they're blatant ways to blind oneself to sin. And the nature of sin is deceitfulness, according to Hebrews 3.13. People who lived 
telling lies, especially people with addictions, are able to tell such good stories. They begin with good stories that pass as credible. But as they keep excusing themselves, the stories begin to grow and then become so outrageous that it's just painful to hear them. The person began deceiving others, but now he has done it for so long that the only person who believed those stories is himself. The only person that is being deceived is himself, and he cannot see it. There are so many reasons why we are blind to our sin, and one of them is because we like it, because we enjoy it. It benefits us somehow. So to recognize that it is wrong and realize that I need to abandon it, it's something that we're not willing to do. Another reason is who wants to admit he is wrong, who likes to be at fault, and the answer is no one. So we won't be the ones taking initiative to recognize sin in our lives. So that's why God is the one who will take initiative. In the case of Israel, Moses said, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness for these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart. And I'll be reading from the verses that Pastor Leo read. Deuteronomy 8, 1 to 5, verse 1 says, Be careful to follow every command I'm giving you today, so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. God is good, and he wants to bless us. And the reason that he wants to uncover our heart is because he is good. He wanted to bless the Israelites to follow his commands that they could live, that they could increase, that they can possess the land, that God's promises can be fulfilled in them. God is good, and he wanted the best for them, and he wants the best for us. So he takes the initiative. Verse 2, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way into the wilderness for these 40 years. Then God does something that in our estimation doesn't sound that good to humble and test you and the purpose in order to know what's in your heart. God humbles and tests us to reveal or to show what's in our heart. One of the most rewarding times in ministry for me was the years that I was a pastor in Paraguay, South America. But it was something that ended up suddenly and unexpectedly. It was a difficult time, a painful time. I would not consider myself a prideful person, but those times show me that I really am. The whole situation showed me what was in my heart, and it wasn't pretty. To humble and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. According to this verse, keeping God's commands shows where is our heart, or what's in our heart, how. The way we respond 
to trials and to difficulty, if we keep his commands, that shows that we honor God with our heart. But if we don't keep his commands, it shows that there is sin in our heart. Let me give you an example. God instructs us in his word, in everything, give thanks. In the midst of trials, when things are not going the way I want, do I give thanks or do I complain? Do I have a thankful attitude or I grumble against God, others, and the circumstances? Let me give you another example. If I'm offended, if someone mistreats me, do I obey God's commands? Do we obey God's will by defeating evil with good or do we repay evil with evil? Do we seek revenge or we are kind and compassionate, praying for those who offended us? God take us to the desert to know what's in our heart if we are going to keep God's commandments. A woman came for counseling. She found out that her husband had lied to her. Before they got married, he told her that he had never had sex. She kept herself pure for her wedding. Year, years later, he confessed that he had been sexually active. She became very upset, which is natural and the right response. But now, every time they had differences, she would hit him, scratch him, and scream at him. What's in her heart? Now, let me clarify. She was wronged. Her husband sinned against her. So I'm not suggesting in any shape, way, or form that she should be passive or stoic to the news, but hitting, scratching, and screaming at her new way to relate to her husband is not according to keeping God's commands. The whole situation was showing her things in her own heart that she had not been willing to see before. How do we respond to losses in our lives? How do we respond to difficult situations, financial difficulties, illness, accidents, pain, trials? Difficult circumstances will show what's in our heart. But why would God allow those things to happen to us? Why would God allow or permit that people wrong us? Or why would God bring events that makes us experience pain? And the short answer is because he loves us. So we usually tend to think that he is not good when he permits these things in our lives. But in every sin committed against you, he is there, offended too. In every wrongdoing to every human being, he is the one offended first. Every sin is first an offense against God. So he is not absent or unmoved by our suffering. Besides, he already has experienced the weight of all those sins. So never we are to think that he doesn't care or that he does not understand. In God's infinite wisdom, 
all good and evil can and will be turned to bring glory to him. Also, he loves us so much that he wants to clean our hearts from sin. And sin hides in our hearts. Many times we are blind to it. Many times we are very good to ignore it. But once God exposes sin, he does not abandon us to our own resources. It says he humble you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna. While God caused the hunger, he also provides manna. He satisfied the hunger. But God is more interested than just satisfying our physical needs. Manna gave physical life to people in the desert, but it pointed to a higher reality, towards real life, a life that only comes from God. We read manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. God wants to take us from satisfying our physical needs, our earthly desires, to something better and greater. But in order to do that, he took the Israelites to the wilderness for 40 years. What happened to the people of Israel for 40 years? They saw all kinds of miracles. They experienced God's presence. They saw God's works for 40 years. But the sad story of Israel is that seeing all those miracles and seeing God's presence in the cloud and in the column of fire did not bring them to trust in him. What happened when they were hungry? They complained, they grumbled. They say things like, we didn't want to leave Egypt in the first place. We told you, Moses, leave us alone. Or why do you take us to the desert to die? At least they were tombs in Egypt. They reminisce about their great life as slaves in Egypt. In those moments, when they were hungry, when they were thirsty, their hearts were exposed, mistrusting God, anger, ungratefulness, fear, anxiety, love of the world. God is not a cruel God who makes us suffer to enjoy our suffering. He is a loving God who's helping us to see who we really are, what's in our heart. What the heart of the Israelites showed was not good, but we haven't changed. I can easily deceive myself and think that I'm a good guy, but I am not. I'm a sinner. Trials, difficulty, and pain in my life has shown me over and over how ungrateful and how much lack, lack of faith I have in God. But in the midst of trials, we see God's goodness because he gives us manna, even though we have not responded well. He cares for us in the midst of our trials. He is there when we are suffering. He is providing for us. He is walking with us. 
but God's intervention does, in our lives does not stop with the material provision or the provision to satisfy our hunger or any physical need. The manna pointed to a better meal, real food. God provided manna, a type of oats to make bread, to point us to the real bread that satisfies the soul, God's word. So we are not to stop short of God's purposes when he blesses us with early blessings or when he sustains us in our difficulties. If we all get out of those experiences, is this only the satisfaction of being brought back to comfort and ease or health or financial stability or back to good relationships, it shows that we have, have missed the point completely. That shows us that we really care for God's blessings and not for him. That shows that we love more what he gives than what we love him. And that's exactly what happened with Jesus when he multiplied the bread for the crowds. When the people had been fed, they were looking for Jesus. Just as many times people today are looking for Jesus, but not because they care for him. So Jesus had to confront the multitude and said, very truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, not because you believe in me, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Sadly, sometimes the message of modern Christianity is the one that should be called the Wonder Bread Christianity. Come to Jesus because he will give you Wonder Bread, no real bread, Wonder Bread. Come to Jesus because he will give you happiness, success, friends, and all else you need. And of course, God can give us these things, and he wants to bless us in these ways and many more, but that is not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is not about the things or the blessings that God can give you. It's about knowing him and making him your God. God's miraculous provision of bread for the Israelites in the desert and the multiplication of bread to the crowds was to lead them to God. Manna pointed to the real bread, the word of God, a bread that gives life, a life that only comes from the words of God. The other mistake that sometimes is made in modern Christianity is that it teaches you that God's, God loves you so much because you are so special. But you and I, are not so special. The walk in the desert showed the Israelites that they were really stiff-necked people, stubborn people. When I was a child and I was reading the stories of the Israelites, I just would think, these people don't get it. They just don't get it. And I would get upset until I became a teenager because that was me, too. Difficulties shows how bad our heart is. It is really interesting that when things go bad, and I'm 
really bad, some people leave the faith. They get angry at God. That shows how bad we are. God provides for us. He gives us life. Any blessing in our life comes from him. But something goes wrong, and that shows our heart. Difficult times shows how dead we are in sins. It shows the reality of our hearts. It shows the real me without makeup. But when we are able to see the great need that we have for God, when we realize that justice really means I deserve to die because of my sin, that I have nothing to offer, when I'm humble I re- and realize that I don't deserve nothing from God, then he shows up showing compassion and mercy and feeds us with manna to point us to the word of God that gives life. And in God's incredible plan, the word of God became a man and he lived among us and we saw his glory. Jesus Christ is that word of God. He said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. This is the message of the gospel. Once we have seen what's in our heart, how really poor and needy we are, then he lavishly offers us the bread of life, a bread that whoever eats from it never go hungry or thirst again. Jesus said, for my Father's will is that everyone who looks at the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. Eternal life, real life. Deuteronomy says, feeding you with manna to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus clarifies for us the passage of Deuteronomy. He says, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. Trials and tribulations are to show us the need we have for God. If we have not repented from our sins and committed our life to follow him, they are an opportunity, an invitation to come and eat for free, as Isaiah says, without money, without price, to believe in him, to have eternal life. If you are his child, trials and tribulation are an opportunity for us to look into our heart and to be changed, transformed, cleansed, forgiven, purified, sanctified. That's what God wants. He wants to make us holy. Deuteronomy continues, your clothes did not wear out and your feet did not swell during these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplined his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. God cares for you and loves you. He loves you enough to discipline you. God is a good father to those who have come to him. God is a good father when he allows or brings 
brings difficulties to our lives. None of us likes pain. No one likes suffering. No one likes to go through trials of tribulation. But God is a good father who is involved. Sometimes as Christians, we have taken for granted that he is our father. The fact that he is our father is something incredible. It is the greatest privilege that any human being can have. Passing from being God's enemies, condemned to become children of God through adoption is the most incredible thing. This is better than any rag to riches story because it's a story from enemies to sons just for recognizing our sins, repenting from them, and accepting God's gift of forgiveness and salvation obtained by Christ Jesus dying on the cross of Calvary in our place for our sins. J.I. Packer said, in adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship. He establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God as the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared by God the Father is a greater. And that is why the Apostle John says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. But a good father wants his children to have his character, to be good children. A good father disciplines and corrects. But in order to correct, first he has to show us what's wrong. So he take us to the wilderness, takes us to the wilderness to humble and to test us in order to know what's in our heart, whether or not we would keep his commandments. He is a loving father that wants the best for us. He wants us to enjoy the best, and there is nothing better in the whole universe that we are in a good relationship with our heavenly father. He wants that nothing stands between us that we can delight in him and he in us, that we can enjoy him forever. Let's pray. Lord, as your word says, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. And Lord, there are many people in our congregation who have responded so well to trials and difficulties, and they are an example of faith for us. Lord, thank you for those lives, and thank you, Lord, for the training. Lord, help us to imitate, imitate their faith. Lord, we want to be obedient children, and Lord, we don't like to suffer. So we're not praying for things to come. But Lord, in your wisdom, 
when you allowed those things to come, help us to be faithful to you, to respond well, to honor you, how we lived through those times. And Lord, we do pray that you bring um, release, relief uh, from those things. But at the same time, Lord, we pray that you form us, that you change us. And that's our prayer, Lord. Change our hearts. Change our hearts. Forgive us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.